You're listening to the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast, your source for news, discussion, and debates about the Vols and Lady Vols basketball programs. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Hello, everyone, and welcome in to another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. I am Nathaniel Rutherford, joined by Gene Henley, and I welcome you all in to another episode of the show, one of the last episodes of the year 2021. Feels crazy to say that, but 2022 is almost here. Thank you all for tuning in. If it's your first time here, welcome into the show. If you're listening to this uh, on podcast, you can check out the video version of this as well on our new YouTube channel. Go subscribe there while you're there because we don't just do video versions of the podcast. I do matchup breakdowns for a lot of the big games of Tennessee. I've already done a couple of those now. We'll hopefully maybe do some other interview type stuff on there as well for other video content. So be on the lookout for that. can also find us everywhere podcasts are found. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, you name it, we're there. In fact, leave us a five-star review on Apple and, a, and leave us a written review. And in fact, now Spotify also allows you to do uh, reviews and five-star reviews and things. So if you'd be so kind, you guys can go on to uh, Spotify if you listen to it on there and leave us a five-star review on there as well. So leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening to the podcast because you can do that in uh, multiple places now. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at Vol Hoops Fever on Twitter and Vol Basketball Fever on Facebook. I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but I didn't do it off the top of the show. I did it near the end of it, so I want to go ahead and do it here at the top. And I, I mentioned before that if you leave a review, I'll read it here on the show. I'm going to read this one as opposed to doing it at the end of the show. I'm going to read it here right off the beginning from Ray Steely. Gave us a five-star review, so thank you, Ray. Longtime basketball fan. Great information. Love having access to UT B-Ball Insight Weekly. Thankful for the Lady Vols portion of the pod as well. All of all fans should follow. So again, thank you, Ray, for the kind review on Apple Podcast. Really appreciate that. That was left earlier this month. All right, Gene, we had to dive right into it here because Tennessee got a big win. And, and not just a big win, but they got a, a win that uh, could really, really set them up well in you know, in a couple months here in March when it comes time for Selection Sunday. Tennessee pulls off a 77-73 win over number six Arizona, a team that I said going into it I thought uh, potentially would be the is the best team Tennessee's faced this year. It might be the best team Tennessee faces all season, but I don't know because Tennessee has a pretty tough schedule uh, moving forward to SEC play and then also with uh, Texas looming as well. But point is, Gene, I, I thought this this matchup for Tennessee was one that wasn't going to favor them in a lot of areas. I thought with the height Arizona had, with the way they played a really efficient offense, they had an efficient defense as well. Tennessee jumps out to a 16-2 lead in the in the game there at the beginning. It gave a lot of credit to Arizona for fighting back. They never could take the lead, but they tied it up twice in the second half. Uh, they were held to 21 points in the first half was Arizona. Then they dropped 52 in the second half. So they figured some things out on offense. Tennessee's defense, uh, you know, wasn't as strong in the second half, but that defense was firing at all cylinders early, forcing a lot of Arizona turnovers. And then Tennessee rode John Fulkerson to death in the late uh, portion of that game. He looked like vintage Fulky out there. A double-double, 24 points, 10 rebounds, even had two assists in the game as well. It was 8 of 13 from the floor, 8 of 12 from the free throw line, played 30 minutes, and, and Gene, he looked like, again, the Fulkerson from a couple years ago where you just gave him the ball, he gets on the block, and he, he 
either as a fadeaway or he does a hook shot or he goes up and draws a foul. He he was doing things I haven't seen him I haven't seen him do in a couple years, and it was really nice to see that. Um, Tennessee again needed that because they didn't shoot great from three. They basically shot 30. percent I think they're like seven of 24, seven of 25, somewhere around there from three in the game. So or not a great percentage from three. If you told me going into this game, Gene, that you would have Kennedy Chandler and Santiago Vescovi, Vescovi, excuse me, go a combined three of 15 from three, I thought there's no way Tennessee wins this game. But you had the contributions from not only John Fulkerson, but also Josiah Jordan James was pivotal on offense. 12 points. He was 2 of 6 from 3, 5 of 11 overall. Also had 5 rebounds, 2 assists, 2 blocks. He was, a, again, the every man, every, every everything man for Tennessee in this game. And then Justin Powell came off the bench and provided some really quality minutes. 11 points, 4 boards. He was 1 of 2 from 3, 4 of 6 from the free throw line. And how about your boy, or our boy, I guess, we give him a lot of grief, but how about our boy, Gene, uh, Urosh Plasic played some quality minutes. He played 10 minutes, but he, he came out, and I think his first four or five minutes on the floor, he looked pretty good. He, he he provided quality minutes. He was not a liability out on the court. He had a very key offensive board that was dished back out to, that ended up being a, a Josiah Jordan-James three. Uh, he finished two points, three rebounds, and an assist, two offensive boards. So that again, very notable there in 10 minutes. Again, you know, not the most amazing stat line, but he did affect the game, and he actually played some quality 10 minutes out there. And while Olivia Kamwa and Kennedy Chandler didn't have the greatest offensive night, uh, Chandler was 2 of 14 overall for eight points. He still had four assists, three rebounds, and three steals. And Kamwa only had two points on one of five shooting, but. He was very tenacious on the on the boards. Seven rebounds and then three blocks as well. And really should have been a fourth one, but it was called for a foul, even though the rim is also the one that stuffed the uh, Arizona player <laughs> on that one. Uh, Arizona, Benedict Mathurin got his points. He got 28 points. He, he was uh, basically their only source of offense because a lot of their other players who are very good offensively got into foul trouble pretty quickly. Uh, Christian Coloco and... Uh, Azulis Tavelis both got in foul trouble. And in fact, uh, Coloco and Mathurin and Kirk Kreese all ended up fouling out in the game. But Gene, but we'll touch on some of the more, uh, I guess, controversial aspects of it in a second, talking about the fouls and whatnot. But this game, I mean, again, it's it's the big highlight and it's worthy of, of being the big highlight. John Fulkerson was the story of the game. And I, I got to give you know a ton of credit to him. But I also got a credit. I also got a question to Arizona and why they didn't change their defense because Folky scored basically the same way, like four, maybe five times. It was giving him space, fifteen feet out from the from the bucket, and letting him have the vision and have a dribble, and then back down on the guy. And again, you know, use his post moves to go up for a hook, to go up for a a layup, or to go, you know, release into his high release fadeaway that he does. I mean it. I give him a lot of credit for making the shots because he's he's not always made those this season when he's had the opportunity. But also, I got a question: Arizona's defense not changing at any point to try to, to you know to try to defend that and try to take it away from him. But still, Wilkerson is the the big story of this game and and, and deservedly so. I do think that um, a part of the reason you, they, that Arizona didn't change its um, its defense, that, you know, you know, dropping off is. In part because Fulkerson got he got a number of baskets just simply because he was just the hardest working out on the court. Mm-hmm. I mean, heck, case in point, the get I mean the the last basket of the game, I believe, yep. um, where Chandler just made a really bad decision on the drive, and that was that same coverage that led to it, and you know it was the same coverage that was there, and you know it was just 
Fulkerson just wanting, you know, you know, the whole want to effect that you have in, in sports a lot of time where the kid just wanted it more. And that's essentially what was the difference in that game because there were so many times that, you know, there were, so, there were a number of times where Fulkerson either got to the free throw line or was able to score just in part because he was just working harder than everybody else out there. Um, I, I do, you know, at the end of the day, it was a it was a great victory for Tennessee, and you know, like you look and see, you kind of point out some of those other details. Josiah was pretty; I thought he was good throughout the entire game. Uh, when when Josiah is engaged, I think that that's that's a completely different team. Uh, I just yeah. do, and you saw that he was engaged, and you know, he had the early steal and dunk in the first half. You know, he knocked down the big three off the Fulkerson assist in the second half. Um, you know, then I think uh, you know he had, he had made you know, he made a number of just big plays. You know, Chandler I thought was just kind of up and down. I mean, as we talked, I think at the in the previous podcast that this is going to be one of those games where you start to figure out stuff about certain players and and about this team. And I think we can get to that in a minute. But you know, you started to figure out like what this team can be. Um, and you know, Ch- you know, Chandler had some. You know, he had some good moments. I thought overall he was okay. Um, you know, decision making is a problem. I, th- I think in certain some key moments, but but still, like he's your starting point guard. He's such a valuable piece. I think he played. I think he played the most minutes on the team last night. I don't. I don't have my computer around me right now, but I believe he played 33 minutes, which may have been the most. Yeah, he played. He played 34, uh, and then Chandler. Or he played 34. Vesky played 33. So yeah, he's the most. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I mean, <clears throat> that's still a person you need out there, and I do. I do think the foul trouble with Vescovi kind of hurt some of that too. Mm-hmm. But um, you're going to live and die with you know with those freshman point guards, and, and there's going to be good moments. There's going to be bad. I mean, I don't think that Chandler will always make that decision like he made at the end of the game. He just made it, you know. He made it in a key moment um, last night. But um, like I, I've, we said this, I think when this was the, when we, you know we had branded this differently. Uh, I, I don't think people give John Fulkerson enough credit for how good of a play. Not not opponents. Opponents no, because you saw the double teams and stuff that were being run at him early. But I don't think people give him credit for just how good of a basketball player he actually is. Uh, for whatever reason that may be, um, I don't think enough people give that kid credit for how good of a player. And look, some of it, some of it is he does do a lot of just like flopping around. And look, there are there are a couple calls, and we'll get to it later. There are a couple calls that I do thought I thought were just you know, focus and flailing fouls, and uh, early, early. Now I, I I saw everything that happened throughout the game. I don't. I'm not saying that they weren't fouls, but I do think that there was some. Uh, you know, kind of aspect to some of the stuff mm-hmm. that I saw, but man, my biggest takeaway was sitting back and looking at, you know, another thing I was going to be interested in is just who was going to play, because you know we talked about this last week. The gimme games are done. You've had, you know, going into last night, I think you had had what ten games to kind of figure out exactly what your rotations were going to be in 10 games for people to look and see just what, I mean, who Barnes is going to feel comfortable and com- comfortable with and confident in. And, man, I think we talked about this in the preseason when we talked about, you know, some things that, you know, could possibly be the case with, with certain players. And I don't, know if, I don't know if people notice this, but Brandon Huntley-Hatfield's not in that rotation. Right. At all. 
played two minutes last night. I think he looked lost on one possession, and he did not see the court again. And one of the things I mentioned was it's, it could be real easy, you know, when you have Josiah Jordan-James, a guy who has been through a lot of stuff and can play a number of different positions, you could have a lineup where you had some semblance of Chandler, Vescovi, Powell, uh, James, and Fulkerson. And that's essentially what you had in key parts down the stretch. Uh, plot, you know, Eurosh, man, um, the two offensive rebounds and the kick out to Ziegler for the three, or the, the you know, the, the two offensive rebounds that led to the Ziegler three in mm-hmm. the first half, that was huge. Yep. And it's just, like, that's just, well, that's a kid who I don't think you have to ask much of. Just ask him to have effort and energy. And, like, to see him as a part of that rotation was big. I thought, I said, I thought Olivier was good. Um, yep. I thought that the players who need they needed to be good were good, but I mean we've seen what you know you know Barnes typically goes about an eight man rotation about this time this year, and we saw what that rotation was, um, and you know maybe that's something maybe it could be adjusted or shifted, but you know we see the eight, we see the starters, we see Eurosh, we see Ziegler, we see Powell. And I feel like I'm forgetting somebody. Oh, um, those are those are the three guys that play off the bench. <laughs> okay, yeah, <that's laughs> you're spot on. Those, they all played like 20 minutes last night, mm-hmm. and that's your eight. And um, like, look at that. And you can you can obviously, as last night show, you can do a lot with that eight. Uh, you're gonna you're, you, sh- you have plenty of reason to feel confident. I think you've got 10 home games remaining. You've got with that crowd and that energy. Um, and with Fulkerson playing like he did, there, you have to feel confident in your ability to, in each of those 10 games, I think, that you have left. Um, the other nine, we'll see, but that's obviously that's just playing on the road in conference play. Those games can yeah. always go either way. But I, I was interested to see what that rotation was going to look like. And, I mean, we got some answers last night in, in, in that regard. Yeah, a quick note about the crowd. It wasn't quite a sellout, but there was, there was about 20,000 there. That was the best crowd I've seen. I wasn't there in person. I, I was there in person for the 2019 Kentucky game, and that was the best crowd since that game from, from everything I, I remember um, from being at that game when it was at Thompson Bowling in Tennessee. Jumped out to a quick early lead in that game too and never let Kentucky back in it. That crowd was electric in that game, and this crowd against Arizona was also electric. It, it was an incredible atmosphere. And I, I think it, I do think it shocked and kind of that also played into why Arizona was rattled early. Cause they've played, you know, they played a road game against Illinois and I said it in my uh, matchup breakdown. I was like, you know, they, they, I don't think this will bother them because they played neutral site and they played a true road game. But I also know when Thompson bowling is rocking, it, it, Illinois is not going to compare to a rocking Thompson bowling arena. And I, and I think that was, that was proven right. I think Thompson bowling, when you have 20,000, 21,000 fans in there, um, and they're they're rowdy and loud, and then the and the team gives them a reason to be rowdy and loud. Um, it's it's one of the best basketball experiences you could ask for. It, it was incredible, and and that crowd was electric in that game. And that, that I think that and Fulkerson mentioned after the game that really helped, you know, push him and help the team kind of energize them a little bit. So it, I don't think people really realize how big of a difference the the crowd can make when you and you, know, you look at last year when. You had very limited seating because of COVID and everything, and just how different it is this year. 
um, for home court for Tennessee, especially you know moving forward now with this game and then moving into SEC play when you'll have bigger crowds. Because this was a first really team that fans really cared about coming to see in, in, in Thompson Bowling. Besides, you know, before this, you had teams like USC Upstate, UNC Greensboro, Presbyterian, Tennessee Tech. You know, you, you didn't have a a, a big-time opponent to really come and watch in Thompson Bowling. This was the first one. And now you're going to come back in January 5th, and it's going to be Ole Miss. That's going to be, you know, a, you know, not the most premier SEC team ever, but fans will show up for that because it'll be, you know, even though it's a Wednesday at 7, uh, that's an SEC game. People will show up for that. You also have uh, South Carolina, which should be one that people come up come to. You'll have LSU on January 22nd. That, that'll be a, a Saturday as well. So you know that one's going to be uh, pretty full. The Tennessee fans love, and everybody else loves the hate Will Wade. So I imagine that will be rocking. But to go back to the actual game, Gene, I, I thought you brought up um, a lot of good points there. And to kind of build off of it too, the rebounding to me, you know, that was an issue that I, I, I think that to me is the biggest thing I'm surprised Tennessee won was the rebounding battle. Um Arizona finished with, I think, I think 34 rebounds, and Tennessee finished with 37. I, I know part of that was because, you know, Arizona's big men got in foul trouble early, pretty quickly. Both picked up two fouls pretty early. But even when they were in, um, Coloco played 19 minutes, Stabilis played 13. They still didn't rebound very effectively, even though they were in. I know, you know, you, you affects how you play your aggression when you have fouls or in foul trouble. But both those guys only grabbed three rebounds apiece. Um, it, it's one thing for your, you know, not to be able to score a bunch of buckets and stuff when you're in foul trouble, but they still only grabbed three rebounds and Coloco got two offensive boards. Tabellis got zero offensive boards, which this team, this is the first time all season that Arizona hadn't had at least 10 offensive rebounds in a game. So again, Tennessee did a good job of when they missed a shot, or when Arizona missed a shot, Tennessee would do a really good job of actually getting it. And Tennessee finished with 15 offensive boards. That is, I mean, that's the big thing. Fulkerson had five. You already mentioned Urosh had two. Powell had two. Camwell had two. Uh, Josiah Jordan James had three. Even Kennedy Chandler uh, is credited with an offensive board. So, I mean, that was a, a huge advantage for Tennessee. I, and I said coming into it, if Tennessee can keep it even in the rebounding and make Arizona turn the ball over more than they usually do, Tennessee has a good shot of winning, and they did both those things exactly. Arizona came into the game averaging 12 and a half, uh, 12 and a half turnovers a game and turned over 17 times. So Tennessee did a great job of affecting both of those things Gene, I, you were right and spot on talking about the rotation and it being eight eight guys, and that's basically all who played. Homie Hatfield played two minutes, and you mentioned it. He didn't look great in those two minutes. And then Victor Bailey Jr. only played one minute, which I thought that to me was the even more interesting one because I, I can understand Homie Hatfield not playing because he's a freshman, um, and Tennessee you know, went to that 4-1 set for a while there. You had a, a small ball lineup with James at the 4 and Fulkerson at the 5. And that's one reason why Kamwa, you know, he played 20 minutes. He, he That's that's a good amount for him. I think you'd also ideally, if you're Barnes, like to see Fulkerson not have to play 30 minutes in a game. But when he's rolling, you keep him out there. You know, that's, that's a, a, a no question about that one. But it was interesting to see the minute breakdown in this game because you had Kamwa, who's a starter, get 20. Powell off the bench with 26. Ziegler get 12 off the bench and Urosh get 10 off the bench. And then Homie Hatfield and Bailey basically were out there for a couple seconds and then were, you know, back to the bench. And I understood it. Powell, to me, I thought his defense was better than it had been for most of the season. And again, he's a young guy, so he's still learning. I just thought it was really interesting that Bailey didn't get really any play in a game where Tennessee's offense, after that really quick start, kind of never really 
got going. He never really developed a rhythm other than, of course, John Fulkerson and working kind of inside out a little bit. But you didn't have as much dynamic three-point shooting, as much dynamic offense in this game as you have in, in, in games past. I just I, I think it'll be interesting to see what does Victor Bailey Jr.'s role you know, what is it moving forward? Is is that going to be the case? You know, I don't think he's going to be benched entirely for, you know, every single game moving forward. But Tennessee only has so many minutes to go around, and that's the issue. When you have so many minutes to go around and guys who actually can play, um, you're not going to get as many minutes as you probably think you deserve. And like you said, you got to keep Chandler out there. As long as he's not in foul trouble, you got to keep Vescovy out there. James does so much for you on both ends of the court that you got to keep him out there. The only spots that are really up for or grabs are that four and five, and you're typically going to have Fulkerson or Kemwa out there. And if you don't have one of them, then you're probably going to have the other. And then you're going to have a guy like Powell or Ziegler be out there as your, your fifth player who's you know not playing the four. You're going to have James playing the four. So I, I think you're right. I think the eight that played against Arizona is probably the eight you're going to see the most of. But it, it still makes me very curious what happens with Victor Bailey Jr. Because he's Tennessee's most inconsistent three-point shooter. But he's also Tennessee's probably, uh, uh, as we said on the podcast before, probably the most confident three-point shooter. I think Vescovy is obviously pretty confident shooting the three as well. He, he had 12 attempts from three in that game and was only three of 12, but he, he was not afraid to shoot it. But Gene, I, I think that's that's the big question mark because I, I expected Huntley Hatfield to if, if he didn't look good early, he was not going to play this game unless Irosh also looked bad early. And in that case, I think you had to play one of them in, in some sort of minutes. But I think to me, you know, what does this game mean for Bailey moving forward? And we'll get back to the kind of the game itself in a second, but I think that that to me is a, a huge question coming out of this one. Yeah, and right now I don't know the answer to that. Like, the problem mm-hmm. is if he, if, if Bailey is having inconsistency shooting the ball, then, and who knows, maybe if, if Powell doesn't hit a couple of those early shots, mm-hmm. maybe you go to Bailey. Because I think a lot of Powell's ability to stay on the floor is going to be his ability to hit the shots. Um, now Ziegler is the interesting one to me, but, but Ziegler brings another dimension as, as fact his his quickness and his ball handling ability and his toughness. I liked how he kind of got into it with one of the uh, Arizona kids early in the, like in, I think in the second <laughs> half, and Euros yep. kind of pushed yep. him away. It's just big brother, little brother type stuff. But like there's there's just a certain level of toughness that you know you. In theory, that's what you thought. You know, that's what Bailey has always, you know, in, in theory, brought to the table, and he hasn't necessarily brought that um, this year. And I mean, obviously, he's had some decent moments, but like you're always going to judge your teams off of the games that matter, and there's a different level of mattering between USC, Upstate, and ETSU or whoever it was in, in Arizona. Um, and look, I, I do think a big part of yesterday is that that was a hungry team that was ready to play. They had a game taken away from Saturday yep. that they really wanted to play. And, I mean, and you fall, and, and not only that, but you're, you have the game taken away, but you're following that up with a top 10 team at your place. Oh, of course. Like, emotionally, you're ready to play that game the second that Saturday's game gets canceled. You're frustrated, but you're like, well, we can't be too frustrated because we got Arizona tomorrow. I mean, in five days or four days, and you know, looking at, and looking at looking forward, I mean, you're you're like, can how will these things work? I mean, I think it, it works in the fact that it, it 
I think yesterday worked out the way it did because Tennessee had gotten the Arizona Bigs in trouble, in foul trouble. Could they have could they have used those same rotations? Because obviously games dictate rotations sometimes. And you may need your role to give you 15 minutes in a game, and then maybe the next game he can't play against like an Alabama or somebody like that. You don't know him, but you're always trying to you know tell your guys to be ready and and, and and just wait your turn. And but I think the early foul trouble, which caused um, Arizona to really change how they did things. Because I mean, I, I mean, early on, like early on, T- Tennessee's defense was smothering. Yeah. Then then I thought Arizona just started missing some wide open shots, and I think you can you know blame the crowd. I think some for that because they had some wide open three point looks in that first half and they were just missing them. And you're kind of wondering, man, if they start hitting these, can this be a game? And sure enough, second half, uh, Curse hit a couple. Uh, number zero was just, you know, from I think he ran out of gas. But I mean, for the most, the you know, he had 14 in the first half. He was carrying the team. Um, I think he finished with 14 in the second half too. 28 out of their 73 points. I mean, Arizona scored 52 points in the second half. Right. Yeah. And that was, you know, and that was largely against uh, that "quote unquote" smaller lineup. So there's still uh, Tennessee was able to make it work with that particular eight, but that doesn't change the fact that they're going to kind of have to defend a little bit better. And I think, I mean, obviously, you don't want to be, you know, too nitpicky after a game of that magnitude because it was a great win. You don't want to take anything, you know. You don't want to take any of the shine away from like John Fulkers or anything. But I mean, if you're thinking at this from a coaching perspective, like man, let's enjoy this win. But there's so much we've got to get better at. You know, like it, like some of the shots that they were hitting were just ridiculous, and some of them were like cuts off of cuts. Uh, like a couple of the threes that 25 hit were just. I mean, there you can't you can't guard them any better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's like a couple that Vescovi hit. You can't guard them any better. Sometimes, you know, players make plays. Shooters make shots. But, like I said, I look at that and, and I say, look, this this eight-man rotation, if this is going to hold true, um, I think that it's more likely that you see Bailey somehow infused than Huntley Hatfield. I mean, yeah. I could be wrong with that, but... Yeah. There's just, a, I think there's just a, a, I think there's a respect that um, that Barnes has of Bailey's defense that's going to allow. Like he he's never really a horrible defender. I mean, sometimes defense is more than just guarding the guy in front of you. The second mm-hmm. the ball's passed away, that's defense too. And how do you handle those moments? Um, and you know, obviously, you know, I, I think that there's a place for somebody like Bailey there. Uh, maybe you find a way to get Huntley Hatfield in like a couple minutes every single game. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's a, you know, we got to keep this kid somewhat engaged type, you know, um, you know, desire there because I, I get it. That's a highly talented kid, extremely talented kid. May, I mean, quite possibly the most talented player on that team. But, you know, like you can't be lost in big games. And, You've got night what nineteen of them left. <laughs> You've got nineteen big games remaining. Because whereas like I don't think Ole Miss, I mean like Ole Miss has already lost to uh, what 
Sanford. San, San, Ole Miss lost to somebody in the Southern Conference. Uh, so the SoCon is a really good league, but they lost to somebody last week, I believe. Um, I could be wrong on that, but I feel like they lost to somebody that was. And I know they lost to somebody in the lower league. Um, and then you've got. I feel like Sanford beat Sanford. I, I don't know. Anyways, I'm looking but, at right now. <laughs> yeah, like. I was tweeting about it some last night. Um, uh, let's see. Ole Miss really lost that. to Western Kentucky and Boise okay. State. Yeah, and then Marquette. So, yeah, th- those are the their okay. losses. Yeah. I guess West is probably the worst one. That Oh, yeah, they and, got blown uh, out by middle, Western Kentucky. Yeah, middle, middle Tennessee almost beat them, I believe, is what it was. Yeah, it was close. That was a um, 62-52. But, yeah, West, Western Kentucky beat them 71-48. <laughs> yeah, so. and that, that, that and yeah, and, and Samford. Yeah, take it back. Good. They lost to Samford Tuesday. I missed that one. Yeah, seventy-five, yeah, seventy-three. I knew I, knew, I knew I heard something early this week because I just mm-hmm. look. SoCon is a really good basketball league. Samford's really good. Um, every yeah, team in that league, five hundred or above. UTC has beaten VCU, and they have got a couple top one hundred wins. Uh, everybody in that league is capable of winning. So I, I'm not, but that's not a game that's going to get too many people excited. Mm-hmm. To your point earlier, like I get it, you're, people are going to flock. But if you told me they had like eighteen seven for that game, I'm like, okay, I get that. Mm-hmm. And then I think you said the second home game. I, I've already South forgotten Carolina. South Carolina. Yeah. We'll now see. that third one, people are going to be at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fighting will ways. People are going to be at that one, and. uh I 1,000% understand that. And then when, then the second you get into February, the way the SEC makes that schedule, I'm I'm very confident that there's going – without having seen the schedule, there's probably some – there's an Auburn coming to town. There's a Kentucky coming to town. Uh, oh, by the way, it was Georgia that's lost to everybody in the Southern Conference. They lost to ETSU, and they <laughs> lost to uh, Wofford, I believe. Georgia's lost to everybody but Memphis, which is yeah, exactly. the funniest thing. Yeah, well, this whole – and Memphis, who – Shows up out of nowhere and beats Alabama, right? Uh, yeah. Who also has a loss to Iona this year, but also has a win over Gonzaga. I but then they also lost a, to uh, to Davidson too. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it, it's a crazy. That's why it's everything. It's just about just building yourself up in this non-conference, trying to get wins that can build your resume. Nobody's look Tennessee for the rest of time until. Selection Sunday can flatly say, "Hey man, we we got to win over number six. Now who knows mm-hmm. what number six is? But the second half Arizona team that I saw, that was top five, top ten ish quality. Uh, that first half, that was a team that was shook by the crowd and shook by the intensity that hit them as far as Tennessee was concerned. Because I like that you said it. I was look, man. I was at Tennessee, Kentucky." Um, I also covered Tennessee Memphis that same year, uh, which was the next, the following season, but that same year, I believe. Um, and those two games, and obviously with everything that happened, not, you know, what, a year prior in that Tennessee Memphis game with Penny and all, like there was a, those two games had an intensity level that I've never, never experienced before, like as a reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, to see to see the number of people that were at that game last night, I just thought that was really cool, and to hear like the intensity level because that's a, that's a program that look man, 
when when, ten, when football started struggling a little bit, basketball started improving, and look, they've that basketball program has gained a number of fans just because of what they've been able to do under Barnes, and like even as even as football in in Knoxville is improving, and there's a lot of excitement around it, um, people just not have people just now have two things to go get crazy about now as opposed to just waiting on basketball season and just having the one. Yeah, and now you also have baseball that looks like it's hopefully yeah. going to be going for a while and, and hopefully getting a, a, their you know, renovations to Lindsey Nelson to make that uh, capacity bigger too. So, man, yeah, that, that's a really good point. And um, you, you mentioned you know, kind of the slate of home games, looking at kind of the end of January and into February. I mentioned LSU on the 22nd of January. Florida on the 26th of January. That'll be a big one. I know it's on a Wednesday, but it, it's Wednesday at 6 o'clock, which is weird. So maybe that'll be a late-arriving crowd, but I think even a late-arriving 16, 17, 18,000 for, for that one wouldn't shock me. Texas A&M, eh. But then you also have uh, in February on the 12th, Vanderbilt, which it's Vandy, but you know people go up show for that one because it is an in-state rivalry. And then you mentioned it. You have Tuesday, February 15th is Kentucky. You have on February 26th is Auburn. So yeah, February has some big time, you know, typical big drawing home games for Tennessee. Um, and that Auburn one will be on a Saturday. At, it says either noon or 4 p.m. So uh, they apparently don't know the tip-off time for that one just yet, but that'll be noon or 4 p.m. And then Arkansas to close out the year at home and close out the regular season is March 5th, uh, either at noon or 2 p.m. So that th- those, will, those February games and that last one of March and the end of January is going to be some big drawers for Tennessee um, for for the crowd there. Right, Jim, we, we've, we've kind of touched on it a little bit. Let's just d- jump right into it here now. Let's talk about the fouls and, and the discrepancy in this one for Arizona and Tennessee because I think there were some earned fouls, and I think there were some light whistles uh, or some, some uh, weak calls or whatever. If I'm an Arizona fan, I've seen a lot of them complaining after the game about Arizona getting a bad, you know, bad whistle, and the fact that refs gave the game to Tennessee and whatever. I don't think the refs gave the game to Tennessee, but I 100% will agree with any Arizona fan who has a gripe about the whistle because Tennessee got some favorable calls. They absolutely did. They, they got the home whistle on this one. Um, and it's it's not just the foul discrepancy of 28 fouls on Arizona to, to uh, I think 16 to Tennessee. It it was some of the fouls that were called, especially you mentioned. I, I think there was a couple of. Folky flailing around that you know picked up some calls early on, especially. Um, but there were there were some obviously ones that went against Tennessee that I, you know that were questionable. I, I just don't think it was a great officiating crew, and you could say that for probably ninety percent of college basketball games nowadays that it's just not a great officiating crew. I just don't think it, and it's hard. It's not like it's an easy job either. It's hard to be an official in basketball with all the action and stuff going on and the decisions you have to make in a split second. Um, but I, I will entertain Arizona fans who will gripe about the whistle and say, hey, you know, Tennessee got the favorable whistle. But I'm not going to entertain people who say that, uh, to quote the Field of 68 podcast, not really quote it, but to quote their headline, that Arizona was robbed. Or, or someone, you know, the, you know, the people saying that it was, it was Tennessee, it was Arizona versus Tennessee versus the refs. I don't think the refs did a great job in that game, I, but I don't think you'd be hard-pressed to find a game where refs do a good job in college basketball. But I also think that... I understand the gripe, but also maybe don't turn the ball over 17 times. Maybe don't, you know, get rattled by the by the by the crowd and you know allow your team to fall behind 16 and two. Maybe change your defense a little bit when you see something constantly working against you. 
I don't know, Gene. I I I, I will complain about officiating, but I will never say it's a reason why a, te- a team lost unless it is a blatant reason why. You know, unless it's a call that reverses, for example, in in football, reverses a touchdown or or you know takes points off the board. Unless a call takes points off the board and it's a wrong call, and the game ends up being a you know ends in a one possession game or something like that. That's the only way I will say that, hey, officiating costs a team a game. Even then, you can point to other mistakes the team made in a game and say, hey, if they do this better, then they, you know, the, that officiating wouldn't have come into, uh, wouldn't have mattered, wouldn't have come into play, and they would have won the game anyway. There are other things I can point to Arizona could have done better or should have done better, and they, they could have won this game. And even despite all that, they still made it really close and, again, came back and tied it twice in the second half, and it was only a, a four-point loss on the road in a, a really hostile environment. So, again, I think the Arizona team is a really good team. But I, I got to acknowledge it, Gene. The whistle did go in Tennessee's favor. And it's not to say that, you know, Tennessee didn't deserve the win because they did. Because even with those fouls, again, Arizona did enough to win the game. Uh, whether you want to say it was the, the deciding factor that Arizona lost and was because of the officiating, I would disagree with you because I think Tennessee did enough to earn the win too. But, yeah, I, I definitely think Arizona fans have a um, – a reason to complain about the officiating because it was a little one-sided and I think it was partially because of some acting jobs in Tennessee but there were also some I think bogus calls on both sides I, I just don't think you're, you're going to struggle to really find a really well called college basketball game nowadays because I just think the officiating level is not great across the board yeah um, I mean I, I, I mostly agree I, I don't think I'm never going to judge whether or not a game was fairly called based off social media reaction because <laughs> yeah. I know that that's typically fans who are always going to try to take the perspective of my team was robbed or my team was perfectly fine. Uh, it was a perfectly officiated game. What well, was horrible? Well, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, and, I, and I think that if anybody is um, – I think the bigger issue – I don't think the issue is the 28 fouls against Arizona. I think the complaint is more just the 16 because it just, you know, I, I did, I did hear a snippet. I'm, I'm friends with one of the people who was actually doing the Arizona was robbed uh, podcast. He actually sent me the entire thing. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but he and I were texting back and forth. And um, like a little, after I saw it, I texted him and he responded, but um, I think the issue is more just simply the 16 on Tennessee because of how Tennessee plays. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when Terrence, uh, Terrence Oglesby, uh, he did make the comment. He was like, he said, Tennessee does not play soft. There's nothing mm-hmm. soft about that team. So, and then I, whoever the other guy was told the story of, I guess he was an assistant college basketball coach. I didn't really recognize him um, at first glance, but he had just told the story about how, uh, they basically got a foul on Grant Williams uh, because of something that Tennessee does, you know, on the opening tip where, you know, when somebody tips up, you know, the, the, the ball goes up, they try to tip it, and somebody like Grant immediately tries to clear you out so that Tennessee can get the ball. And I think maybe they had a, a, a kid flop or something, and they end up calling a foul on Grant two seconds to a game. Um, but I, I think that's more of what the – the issue is like I didn't see too many I didn't see too many that were just flatly missed mm-hmm. there were a couple that I thought that the way the game was going you could have called and I and I think if you ask uh, Tommy Lloyd 
that's what he would probably argue is the fact not necessarily that you that we foul 28 times but if you're going to make this your whistle make this your whistle consistently on both ends of the court yeah because right, that does affect yeah. that does affect how players play like if I'm defending somebody I put an arm bar into their back and before the end the second the kid gets the ball he maybe you know flails forward and you call a foul on me okay but then when those roles are reversed and the ball is thrown to me and I feel that same arm bar, and maybe I flail forward, you got to make that call too. And there's just that. And that's where I think sometimes in games people don't necessarily know how to play because, man, you called that down. You know, I attacked the basket, made a layup. I'm sorry, the guy I was guarding attacked the basket, made a layup. I hit him, on the, I hit him in the hip. He made the layup and you caught a foul on me. The exact same thing happened down there. I made the shot, but there's no foul. And, like, I don't, again, I don't think that anybody tightly connected to the Arizona program is out here complaining about fouls cost us the game. Uh, I think I think the slow start kind of did, but you overcame that. So you can't really blame the slow start when I, I, I kept – waiting I'm like if they if Arizona takes the lead in this game it's going to be interesting and, yep. and I just yep. kept watching it as much as they battled back they kept battling and they kept battling there's a different mentality I, I was at a game last night that was similar where um MTSU was ahead on UTC the entire game UTC kept battling they kept battling and then they took the lead and then it was a completely different game and UTC had to win the game by like 15 points uh and I, I wonder. I said, if Arizona can take the lead, and so after the game was over, I went back on the play by play. I'm like, oh, they never took the lead, so they never were. They were always, you know, a, a step behind. I mean, like I know the game was tied on a few occasions in the second half, but when you're behind, I mean, when you're you've been behind all game long, 63 all may as well be 63 57 because you still have that same mentality. They were never able to catch up. Um, like Tennessee won that game because for 40 minutes they had the be- they had the best player on the court. Yep. Uh, and and with all due respect to number zero, who I thought was amazing in the all game long for Arizona, uh, Fulkerson was the kid who again wanted it the most, the kid who had the mentality to go out there and fight and just care about it more. All those little trendy terms that we all roll our eyes about, but they actually have some level of credibility to them. I thought that that did matter. Like that, he was the best player on the court, and they deserved to win the game because of that, and not because of a twenty-eight to sixteen foul discrepancy. I think it's well said. And yeah, I was looking back at the uh, the play-by-play. Um, Arizona tied it up at sixty-two all with five oh six to go in the game. Uh, Tennessee was able to go back and grab a four-point lead after that. But then Arizona nailed a three. Tennessee got a, a free throw. It wanted one, or missed missed one and made one by Fulkerson, and then Arizona was able to go and tie it up, 67 all at 2:58 to go, and then never were able to, as you mentioned, you know, ever get the lead or ever tie it back, tie it back up after that. Um, that's that's really good point about their, you know, your mentality. Even though you tie it up, it, it might as well still to, be trailing because you've never never at that point even had the lead at any point in that game. To quickly interject that, if people mm-hmm. really want to complain, they they should probably look at 
a technical foul that 25 got. That was about to bring that because up. That, yep. that, that played such a huge role because I'm pretty sure it was like a, either a tie game or a one-point game. All of a sudden, Tennessee gets two free throws, and then, the, and then whoever was at the free throw line, I think that was Powell too, mm-hmm. uh, he hit one out of two. So you just got three free points. Yep. And if you look at the the difference in that game was technically four, but, I mean, it was a possession game, essentially. And you gave up three free points on a possession that you didn't have to give up. You were going to give up at least one, perhaps two. But you gave up two points that you didn't even need. And, like, if you look back on the play, I I think I know what he was doing. Like, I've I've done this before myself, and it's when – because if you look at the replay, he's not looking at the ref. But there's a way that you can communicate stuff to your teammates where you're also mocking the official to where you're saying something like, ah, don't worry about that crap call. Don't worry about it. Hey, we're good. We're good. Don't worry about them. We know it was a bad – and you're saying stuff to your teammates, but it's also mocking the refs. Mm -hmm. And I would not be surprised if it it were to ever come out, and it's obviously not – that that was something because if you just like I said if you just looked in that moment he's not looking at the ref and whatever he was saying was bad enough for at least one of his players to try to stop him from saying whatever to try to stop the official because he saw the the teammate I think it was number four saw that they were about to tee up him and he was like no 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 it was too late he had already teed him up and they and immediately whereas the rest of the team was all confused Number four and I think it was number five were both mad because they knew exactly what he was doing. So if people want to complain about stuff, and I'm not saying they are. I mean, apparently they are. Um, you have to point to moments like that because 28 to 16 doesn't matter if you don't give up those two free points, which, when you look back, look like they're pretty legitimate because two of his teammates were trying to prevent it from happening because they saw it and he didn't even see it. And then he tried to act dumb and probably told the coach I didn't I, I didn't I don't I didn't say anything I wasn't even talking to him yeah but you were saying something that you knew you knew it's intent and yeah. and that so I'm sorry I'm sorry to cut you off but that was one of those things I completely forgot about until you until you started talking about it and I'm like little moments don't matter until they do and you lose a game by four that you had every opportunity of stealing on the road, a game that you started horribly, you have to be if man, if you're going to play in Knoxville, man, especially right now, you've got to be fifteen points better. And that's got nothing to do with officiating. That's got everything to do with the way that team plays at home, now that they've got their crowd back. You know, like all of that stuff that that, that they have to their advantage right now. You have to be fifteen points better. And guess what? That which means you can't make the silly mistakes that could potentially cost you in a close game, which is exactly what last night's game was. Yeah, I was going to circle back to it, so I'm glad you went ahead and brought it up. But yeah, it was a one-point game at that point. When when Powell went to the line, it was 63-62. Um, he was there at the line, and like you said, uh, Kirk Creasy got that whistle for technical. Powell made both of his technical free throws. He missed the um, next one, but then he ended up making the, 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 the another one that he did there. But yeah, um, he was 3 of 4 on that that run there was opposed to being maybe one of two or two of two. Like I said, that was three free points that made it a one-point game up to a four-point game. And, and then, granted, you know, 
10 seconds later, or not even 10 seconds later, uh, Justin Keir goes down and nails a three and makes it a one-point game again. But that, that was the difference in it being a one-point game to potentially Arizona having the lead at that point. So that was a really good point. And I was going to ask and, you. And, and sorry, and sorry to, to tie Bo on this, mm-hmm. a technical foul I'm pretty sure is a personal foul. Uh, yeah, he got because that, that ended up being his. Out. I think that ended up, end up being his fourth, and yeah, he ended up fouling out later on. That's a foul that you could have. You're not able to help your team at the end of the game because of that foul. So that matters. Like those are the little again that matters as well. Sorry about that. I just sorry yeah. I'm on a roll. I'm excited. <laughs> I, you know, people who don't know, I don't typically have a chance to watch the games, but today I sat down. I had an opportunity to sit in the, to watch the game beginning to end. So I've got thoughts, I've got details, and I'm just so the thing was not the only wise went on this particular podcast. I've I've got information, I've got notes too. Well, my my question to you, and then we can kind of move off this game too. But my question to you about that that foul is: Did you think it was a weak call? Because I saw people, you know, more Arizona fans than anything else, saying that was a weak technical call. But I I also think it was it's not just that specific moment. I look at Kirk Risa, and I I saw this from other Arizona writers. He's not quite at the same level as a Marshall Henderson, but he's that kind of guy where he has attitude and he's always drawn off. You saw him in the game. He's a very just passionate player, yelling and getting his team fired up and he and him himself getting fired up. I don't think it was necessarily just that moment. I think it might have been just a culmination of, you know, him jawing off the entire game. But I, I am curious your, your opinion on it, Gene. Did you think it was a weak technical foul call? No, because I don't know what was said. Hmm. Because if he said if, if he did things in the scenario that I kind of framed out, that I kind of just laid out, where he's talking indirectly to the refs, but he's looking at his teammates, that's technical worthy. Because you are you're showing up, you're showing up the refs because you didn't like something that may have been called, and that kind of looked like my perspective when I was that was my perspective when I was watching it was. It seems to me the the way that his teammates tried to run in because they saw it happening and the fact that the official did not care and teed him up because in that moment when he's stepping into the lane and he's just saying hey you know let's you know let's go guys let's go guys hey we're good we're good I'm not going to tee that up but if he's saying something else that's not you know screw these refs guys don't worry about them let's just do us you gotta tee them up so that's why it's hard to specifically say whether or not it's a true tee um, where it was a technical worthy moment because I don't know what was said mm-hmm. I think if we all knew what was said we could all form much, a much different opinion and maybe somebody out there can read lips and tell us what was said prior to the technical but until then, uh, I, I don't know. And, and hold on, Nathaniel, let me throw this back at you because if you brought you brought up the uh, number twenty-five and Marshall Henderson comparison, I've got a comparison for you because of something I said earlier that I don't know if Tennessee fans will appreciate. But please let me finish. What do you think of the comparison between? John Fulkerson and Grayson Allen. Oh, God. Hear me out. Hear uh-huh. me out. Hear me out. Grayson Allen was a really good basketball player. And I'm not about to say, suggest 
I'm not suggesting that John Fulkerson is dirty. What I'm suggesting is that because of just the way he is, people maybe overlook how good he is as a result. Like Grace Nellen, his his niche was, you know, he was the tripper. Mm-hmm. Fulkerson is like, you know, Grace Nellen is to tripping what Fulkerson is to flailing. I think that that's fair. I think, I think that's, that's fair. fair. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. Like, people will sit there and think that John Fulkerson stinks. And I'm like, no, this is a talented basketball player, man. Like, his attack, to when he had the ball in the corner in the second half, and he got that kid, he broke him down, took two dribbles to the lane and made the left hand. I, mean, I know he's left-handed, but he makes the layup going to the, you know, you know, driving to the center of the rim. Like, that's a tough play over a kid who's like 6'9", 6'10". That's a tough play. And... But people will just look at him as the, oh, it's just old John. It's Fulky, it's pals, and not necessarily taking yeah, take into account that this kid is a really good basketball player. So I'm throwing this back at you because that's just something I was literally thinking about earlier in the podcast. I'm like, I know I'll get ripped to shreds because I dared suggest that John Fox was a dirty player, and I am not. I am not making that comparison. So if anybody tries to suggest that I'm calling, if I get anybody in my Twitter mentions suggesting that I'm calling John Fulkerson a dirty player, then I can tell you to not listen <laughs> to what I said because I am not saying that. Mm-hmm. I'm just making the comparison that okay, you got the you got the white kid who is a good bat, it's a really good basketball player. I mean, Grayson Allen's been in the NBA for like six, seven years now. I mean, you don't just make it that far because you like to trip people. You make it because you're good. You have a role, and you understand a role, you understand how to play a role. I mean, he was really good in that national championship game when people didn't even know who he was. Yeah. But, but yes, that's that's the what I want to hear, I guess, your thoughts about. Maybe there's a better comparison. I understand that Greg Nellon is 6'4", Fulkerson is 6'9", but I just look at that because of other things outside of just simply points and rebounds and assists and stuff yeah. that people will sometimes suggest that he's not the player. Like when, when focusing down the stretch of that 2019, 20 season, when he was averaging like 18 points, like eight or whatever, nine rebounds a game. Like I had people like in my mentions talking about what he was this, that, and the other. I'm like, no, he's not dirty. No, he doesn't stink. He's just a really good player. Like, Kentucky fans and stuff. I mean, like, no, this is a really good basketball player. That's where this thing starts. Mm-hmm. It, you know, if you don't give me the starting point that John Fulkerson, really good basketball player, and then you maybe trickle down on some of the Powell stuff or whatever, because I think that people kind of treat him like a caricature of a good basketball player because of all the other stuff that surrounds him. Like when he, you know, when the when was the last time that you were in the zone like this? Last night when I played Fortnite, like like stuff like that. Like when <laughs> because of that, so they treat him like a caricature of a good basketball player. And I'm not suggesting the media is doing this. No, no, I'm no, not suggesting, but I'm suggesting that people will 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 latch on to comments like that. Oh, he's just the every guy. He's just this. He's just old folky, and you know, like 
no. Like to me, the starting point is this is a really good basketball player, and then go down from that. But I just feel like there's just so much that's attached to him, much like there was with Grayson Allen, that it's hard for some people to wrap their mind around the fact that they really are good basketball players because of the other stuff. That comparison to me caught me off guard, but I, I, I get what you're saying. Like you said, you're not saying that he was dirty like, like Grayson, but the fact that they're good players, they have other stuff that people associate with them that makes them forget how good they are. Because like, you made a good point. Like I I myself sometimes forget how good Grayson now it is. This is his fourth year in the NBA, and he's improved every year he's been there, and he's currently got career highs in almost every category. He's averaging... Uh, for the for the Bucks, thirteen points, almost four boards, and he's making forty two percent of his threes this season. So I mean, he in, in thirty minutes a game almost, and he started all thirty games he's played in. So yeah, that's like you said, you don't just get into the NBA because you stay there for four or five years because you're a role player most of the time. He's a guy averaging thirty minutes a game, starting all thirty games he's played in, and is averaging thirteen points, four boards, and again shooting forty two percent from three. Um, Pretty dang solid, if you ask me. And, and again, I don't, I don't like Grayson Allen at all, but he's he's developed every year he's been there, and is a really good player. He's a he was a really good player at Duke, man. I mean, he he was a guy that averaged uh, I, I want to say God, I look at his, his stats really quick, but he, he he was a guy that averaged a lot of points and a lot of um, just doing a bunch of stuff for them um, in his what his couple years he was there. I can't find his college stats right now. I'll look him up in a second. But um, anyway, he. He was there like four years because yeah, he was there four years of all right. the tripping stuff, and so <laughs> there was a negative stigma that where nobody thought he was any good. But when he, he played, was he good. was really good. He was a first round pick. He was the I think what number twenty one overall pick in the the league. Uh, yeah, I think he's number twenty one overall pick. Yeah, he was a uh, a guy who in his second year averaged almost twenty two points a game for him, and that went down in you know his last couple years. But he still averaged fifteen points a game in his last two seasons for him. It was still a, a pretty darn good three-point shooter for um for duke so yeah i mean i think people forget how good he was he was a, a, a two-time all, all acc player again won the national title as a true freshman on that team it also to your point about fulkerson you're right because he was a guy and as a true freshman again he i mean granted he didn't play um, a bunch of i guess like justin powell he didn't play against a bunch of, of big time teams in his first year before he got hurt, but in 10 games as a true freshman in 16 minutes per game was averaging five points of five rebounds basically per game as a true freshman and a Tennessee team in 2016-17 that wasn't great, but had some young, good talent on that team that, you know, ended up being really good players moving forward for Tennessee, but that's how good he was. Before his injury, he was already averaging as a true freshman basically five and five in just 16 minutes a game coming off the bench and starting some games. He started six of the 10 games he played for Tennessee that year, look at his game logs because I'm, I'm curious who he played against in the, those games. I mean, he wasn't anybody great. I mean, he played UTC, he played Appalachian State, but that was that was the UTC team to get back. That was the UTC team that beat Tennessee that year. That was just more, I guess, an indication of how bad Tennessee was, but that was also a pretty good UTC team. But he played against Wisconsin, he played against Oregon, he played against UNC. Uh, he didn't do anything really against Wisconsin, but against Oregon, played 37 minutes and got 12 points and 10 boards as a true freshman. Five blocks as a true freshman against UNC, another game that Tennessee lost. He played 24 minutes at eight, board, eight, eight points, four rebounds, and two steals as a true freshman, as a guy who isn't, wasn't a, wasn't a four-star, five-star true freshman. That's how good John Fulgerson is. That was a true freshman John Fulgerson playing against you know high-quality opponents in those 
we you know, five six years ago, and putting up points and getting rebounds against some really good teams, and obviously ends up getting hurt and misses the rest of the year, and then he wasn't the same the next season because he he you know was still recovering, and even and again was more of a role player in the next couple of years anyway. But then when he got healthy, again, we saw what he was in 1920. So I think your point is it's a good one, Gene. I, I also think, honestly, a maybe even better comparison for him would be his his one-time teammate, Grant Williams, because I think if he learned, <laughs> if Ferguson learned the flopping and flying around from anybody, it was from Grant, because I love Grant to death, but... And I, I don't I don't think it was nearly as much flopping as a, a certain uh, Kentucky radio host would like it to, to be. But Grant definitely flopped, and Grant flops in the NBA because everybody flops in the NBA. I think it really, if you're going to look at it, but people knew how – the thing is, though, people knew how good Grant Williams was. It wasn't like you said. He, he wasn't a, a caricature to the extent that I think John Fulkerson is where he's this, you know, this kid from Kingsport who's kind of a, a country hick boy who's got that, that – you can definitely tell he's from Tennessee. He's from the South, the way he talks and his accent he has – um, that people forget how good he is. People never really forgot how good Grant was. People pretty much knew how good he was. But I think if you're looking at his personality and his demeanor on the court and the the, the I guess you can call it savvy if you want to, the, the savvy way he's able to embellish fouls and draw fouls on opponents, Grant was just as good at that, if not even, you know, maybe, I don't want to say even better, as I think Fulkerson's the best I've seen at Tennessee in a long time in terms of embellishing fouls and drawing fouls on opponents. I mean, he drew 13 in the game on uh, on Wednesday night against Arizona. But he learned that. I mean, he it, I, I got I can guarantee you he learned that from Grant because, you know, you know, being his understudy for a couple years there and, you know, being the the role player that would come in and fill in for him. He learned that from Grant. And and Gene, I know you will not you will not argue with me. Grant 100% flops sometimes and all the time. But he definitely did at Tennessee and he definitely does in the NBA, but he 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 likes to also embellish uh, some of those fouls. Uh, and I, again, I think Fulgerson absolutely learned from Grant on that one. Yeah, and I think the thing with Grant was uh, what really triggered that whole thing from Kentucky was that for, you know, so much during the regular season, he had gotten away with a lot of that stuff. And then all of a sudden, in that game, you know, it's, it's him versus, I believe it was Reed Travis and. Uh, like P.J. Washington, you weren't getting those calls. And so when you're not getting those calls, now you're just a guy that's out there just flopping. You know, I mean, if you're going to flop, flop with a purpose. You know, (laughs) like get something out of it. And that was a struggle. So obviously the second time around, I I don't think he was a ton better the second time. Now the SEC tournament game, which is still, I'd say – the funnest game that I've ever covered in a uh, second. I, I did a UTC Dayton game in, in Dayton back in 2016. That was amazing. Um, probably the, one of the two most exciting games I've had an opportunity to cover in in my lifetime. And uh, You talk about that 2019 SEC tournament, Kentucky-Tennessee? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. That was one of the most exciting, interesting games. Uh, mm-hmm that I've had a chance to be around, I thought that Grant was really good. You know, I think he hit the – if I recall, he hit the three – a three in, a, in the corner that was massive in that game. And then I know Admiral, I believe, hit a big three. Uh, they just made that big comeback. I think the, the funnest part for me um, is that, I mean, I always – I don't have any specific ties any any school. I always say my dad's from Knoxville. He's from Loudoun specifically. 
my mom's from Western Kentucky, so I have in my blood whatever the blend of orange and blue is. I don't care. That's, that's what my blend is. I, it's just also have some red in there with U of L with Louisville because I've got a ton of family that lives up there. But my coworker, huge Kentucky fan, mm. huge Kentucky fan, and so twice in that year we had. Tennessee come back from like 10 down to beat Kentucky and then the Tennessee Kentucky football game in Lexington that year um, that we were both that together and there's nothing funner than watching him completely break down over those losses but um, (laughs) no I mean I I think that's what a lot of that had to do with was just you know like yeah when you sometimes you have when you get away with something for so long you don't know any other way of going through it yeah, and you know Grant had been able to get away with a lot of stuff, and not then he couldn't. And there's going to come a time we're focusing playing a game where he's not getting those calls, and I imagine it's not going to be in Knoxville. It's going to be on the road somewhere, mm-hmm. and so it's going to just flatly look like he's just flopping out there. Uh, you know, for everybody's sake, I hope it's earlier in the season. Yeah, I, so I, I, I can almost guarantee you it's going to be it, it's going to be January fifteenth in Rep Arena when he goes up against uh, Chiboy and I, 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 he ain't getting those calls. I don't think not not in Rep, <laughs> not not that, against the rebounding machine that he is. That kid had like seventy eight rebounds last night. It was Golly, ridiculous. I, I think he, had it was a, he had a he had a Bill Russell type game, but like he just he just did. It was like crazy. Rodman. Like he, he didn't yeah. even score. I mean, like it's it's crazy, but. Uh, but that's going to be a tough test for somebody like folks. And I think maybe a little bit more skilled than this kid because he's just like, Oscar, go rebound. Yes, sir. And that's, it's just that simple. Like, go grab 20 rebounds. I got you. And uh, and he's capable of doing that. Now, can you know, that'll be a game where if Tennessee goes, we wondered going into uh, this week when we did the podcast uh, on Sunday, we wondered how Tennessee would handle the hype. Well, well, what they did was they just threw their six nine kid at the two, and they got. I do think they got a little bit of a favorable whistle, um, but who cares? Both those guys are in foul trouble in the first half, and that kind of negates what you're doing. And it's hard for those kids to get back into a flow. So therefore, you therefore you won. Uh, the number ten kid didn't score until like a late basket with just like two or three minutes to go in the game, um, and. I thought he was a, he looked like a nice player. Uh, the other big, maybe thirty five or so, I can't remember his name. Um, he looked like he kind of had some of the Kentucky bigs kind of feel yeah. to him, where he's just going to go snag a bunch of rebounds, block a bunch of shots. Lead yeah, that, that was break. that was Christian Coloco. He he's he's built more like a typical center type player. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, and that's and look like. If you get, if you can combat height with fouls, because I'd imagine that that if this was a home and home series this year, and they were going to Arizona to play, that game would look vastly different. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> it would look vastly <laughs> different because that was an intense game. It was a good game. It was an intense game, and I think that that game looks vastly different if they play a second time. But they don't. So until twenty twenty the 2022-2023 season or whenever this actually happens, Tennessee's got bragging rights. And maybe they or unless they or maybe they see each other in March. And that would be interesting. Mm. Because that would not be an early round game. 
the way that these two teams are trending. Uh, I do think it'll be a good one, but I mean, we'll see what happens with Tennessee this this week because I don't think they play again what after Christmas. So uh, yeah, the 29th. Yeah, so they've got or, that win. They've got that win on their resume, yeah. and they'll probably bump up to about ten or eleven. I could see unless AP voters, which look, can be the case, don't always pay attention to what happens in games. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think I saw somebody drop Kentucky and bumped up North Carolina after the Kentucky-North Carolina game uh, last week. Mm. And if that was a two-point game, maybe you could get, maybe you could make that argument, but I'm pretty sure that was about 30. Yeah, that, one, uh, that wasn't close. That was a uh, – Kentucky won that one 98-69. So basically, yeah. basically 30 – 29 points, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, look, all things considered, I think Tennessee bumps up to around 10 – Maybe, maybe 11, whatever. Uh, and, and, like, that's something to build at as we go into this whole SEC play, which obviously is going to be really interesting. Yeah, we, we've already talked for, like, well over an hour at this point, so I, I really quickly wanted, wanted to look ahead just very quickly here that that Tennessee's next few games because it's not easy coming up for Tennessee. Um, you've got at Alabama, like you said, December 29th to end the year. And then in January you have home against Ole Miss, at LSU, home against South Carolina, at Kentucky, at Vandy, home against LSU. Um, I guess there are other ones at LSU. I think I said that right. Uh, anyway, home against LSU, home against Florida, and then at Texas. So <laughs> that's all just the month of January, excluding the Alabama game. So that's a rough month of January for Tennessee. You've got um, LSU twice, Kentucky, um, Florida, and Texas. I mean, again, Florida, I think, is already starting to uh, – Mike White's coaching starting to kick in there, and they're starting to regress from what they were. But it's still going to be a tough game. Uh, I, I think anyway, but man, that's a not easy schedule for Tennessee. And, and I don't, you know, don't want to look ahead too much. I guess I don't. I don't think we'll probably do a podcast before the Alabama game uh, next week. But yeah, man, Gene, that's that's again another big test. This, this was the this was the, a huge test for Tennessee. But again, it was a home, which really helped. Now you're going over Tuscaloosa, where Tennessee just can't they can't win in Tuscaloosa in any sport. It feels like unless it's women's basketball. But besides from that, like. Men's team struggles there in, in basketball. We don't got to talk about the football team and how much they struggle in Tuscaloosa. So that's a, a duh. That's for sure. For sure, even the baseball team has struggled when they played Alabama and Tuscaloosa. I mean, it feels like Tennessee has it's a house of horrors. Tuscaloosa is just not a place that Vol fans want to go. Um, but that one's going to be really interesting because of the way things have gone for Alabama this year. Where, like you said, they've, as we mentioned earlier, just been kind of a. It's been just such a weird and, and interesting, arty and crazy fun to me, college basketball season where you've had a lot of big moments and then teams again. We've already had what, the the Purdue game where they were number one for a few days, like just like Tennessee was back in two thousand eight, number one for a few days and then get upset uh, by a, a late bucket on uh, that one. That was an exciting game against Rutgers and uh, that Purdue game. But you look at Alabama, who owns wins over. Um, well, I guess I don't think Miami's that great this year, but they beat Gonzaga, they beat Houston, and then they go and they lose to Memphis, they lose to Davidson, and they also lose uh, earlier in the year to Iona, which give Iona credit. I don't, Iona's having a, a, a solid year right now. They're, uh, what are they? Are they still undefeated? They were undefeated. I think they, no, they lost to Kansas. That's right. And then, and Belmont too, actually. Yeah, Belmont got them. Yeah. 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 But they're, they're still a solid team, but still, Bama should have lost to them. Especially, I mean, those by four points, but still, they should have lost to them. Um, but that's a it's it's a, it's a home court for Bama, which I think is going to be 
bad news for Tennessee. But Alabama, again, just lost on their home court to Davidson. So <laughs> I don't know, man. It, that one's going to be a really fun one. This Alabama team is a very different team defensively because of no Her- – uh, we mentioned before, no Her- Herb-, Herb Jones. I keep on going call him Herb for some reason, but no Herb Jones has made a difference. And they're not shooting as good from three this year as last year. Again, it would be hard to, I guess, shoot as good from three um, as she did last year because, golly, they were they were exceptionally good from three last year. But right now this year, not horrible, um, but basically about the same percentage as Tennessee. They're shooting 33.7% from three, which is, you know, about 34-ish percent, whereas last year – uh, they made 35.2% of the th- their threes and made 10.5 per game. Uh, this year, they're making almost 10. So I mean, they're, they're close to the same clip, I guess. It just seems like their offense isn't hitting the same way it did, and their defense certainly isn't. The defense last year was a lot better um, efficiency-wise than this one, and, and in points per game-wise, too. Right, and I think that's actually a good matchup for Tennessee because of just – you look at if this is the eight, you know, we talked about the rotations. They mm-hmm. match up, their eight match up well. It's not like there's a. Yeah, Bama's not a, super tall. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, like, you're not talking about a team that is, has the ability to overwhelm you with their size, kind of like we questioned what, how Tennessee would fare against an Arizona. Uh, like, I mean, Alabama's not LSU. I know he, right. you know, you know, way, you know, Will always tries to, you know, overwhelm you with some size and some skill and just be tougher and all this, that, and the other. Um, Bama's not that. So if this is the eight, and we'll see what happens uh, next week, if this is the eight, then it'll be interesting to see how the eight matches up because you're eight. I mean, you, you feel pretty good about that. Now, maybe that's a game where you favor um, Bailey to Ziegler. Um, maybe. I don't know. Again, I don't know. I think but your eight right now, you do have some level of comfort with them because there is some youth there, but then you've got Fulkerson. Um, you've got Josiah. You've got Vescova. You've got guys that have been in that program for a number of years. So whereas you're youthful in some spots, Olivier's in his third year as well. Um, you're youthful in some spots. You've got some guys that have been through it too. So you have a nice little mix there. Um it's just how quickly does your point guard position mature and can they consistently make smart plays down the stretch of games because and I think that's why last night's game was good because like man if you're a freshman you're going to make some mistakes if you've never been in situations before you're going to make some mistakes like that play at the end of the game if I'm Barnes I'd be like Nick Saban at halftime of that Texas A&M game like I'm frustrated but I'm also kind of smiling because I'm like (laughs) I got something I can show them on tape. That's all I need. I can show them on tape, decision-making. This is what we have to have. You know, and Barnes likes down the stretch of games going with two point guards. It was Jordan Bone and Lamonte a couple yeah, years yeah. ago. That was kind of their pairing. Vescovi and Springer, you know, you tried different things, and you still have Vescovi out there. So, you could, you know, there you could go with three guards, three lead guards in that moment. And I think Bailey can handle some of that as well. And to whereas now you're just kind of hoping you can get something out of and I'm, look, I'm only going to go with seven names there because I'm going to leave one out to where you know you've got those primary four and then you just need whatever the role is of Fulkerson and uh, Olivier 
and uh, Justin Powell. I didn't put Euros in there just because down the stretch of a game, let's be honest, we don't need Euros for ball handling in <laughs> any way, shape, or form. Any. Yeah, we may pass you the ball, chin it, get the ball to somebody else. Uh, whereas at least I think you feel confident in at least some of those other kids' ability. Uh, the alleviate attack and pass to Powell in the first half, by the way, was was really good. Really yep. good. So I just, oh, yeah. that, that just speaks to some of the ball handling things that you can expect. You don't need them to be out there crossing you over. You just have to be able to be, you know, good enough with the ball in your hands to where you don't get it stolen from and you can get fouled and you can go to the line and make some free throws. So um, if those are their seven down the stretch, maybe you take Olivier, I'm sorry, maybe you take Euro shot and put Bailey in in that scenario, then now you're better to where you have to be fouled and you have to hit shots. Because we've said it, we've both said it on this podcast, I don't care when you put Bailey in, he thinks he's going to make the next shot. Yep. Oh, yeah. Um, this, this, I'm just looking at him on paper. I, I've, I've watched a little bit of Alabama this year, but just looking at it on paper, like they're it, they're an interesting team for them not being super tall. You do have Charles Bediaco and, and Noah Gurley, who Bediaco is seven foot, Gurley is six eight. But you, you and I talked about Noah Gurley before on on the podcast when Tennessee was looking at transfers and stuff. For them not being a super tall team, they do have three guys who are in that six six range. They rebound the ball pretty well. Jaden Shackelford's six three, and he leads the team in rebounding at six and a half a game, which is pretty impressive. And they actually average um, almost forty one rebounds a game, which is top forty in the country. So I mean, they they do actually do a pretty good job of rebounding for them not being the tallest team out there. But they do have a a very scary trio on offense with Jaden Shackelford, Javon Quinterly, and Keon Ellis. But they have they they have just like Tennessee, they have kind of a rotation of eight. That looks like they like to play. Those three I mentioned have started all three games, all 12 games. Charles Bediaco has also started all 12 games. And then you've recently seen a lineup switch to where Juwan Gary, I think, has been more of the starter. And Noah Gurley has been coming off the bench. But those those two guys are, you know, your fifth and sixth players. J.D. Davison, the true freshman, has, hasn't really quite lived up to the hype, but he hasn't been bad either. He's averaging eight, seven, 8.7 points a game and then basically five rebounds and four and a half assists. So he's, you know, doing a good job of filling up a stat sheet. But to me, it's it's all about Shackelford, Quinterly, and Ellis in terms of scoring um, for Bama, and especially Shackelford hitting almost forty-two percent of his threes so far this year. Um, that's that's he, he's going to be the one that really key in on. But even if you had the key on in him, it's I mean Quinterly can go off and they get eighteen recently. I think maybe in the the win against Drake. That also I mean Ellis can score. So it's going to be this is going to be an interesting and I think fun game and one that I expect to be. Maybe we're on the same kind of scoring range as this one was for for Tennessee. The, I think both teams getting into the 70s. It wouldn't shock me at all um, if that happens because Alabama's averaging right now basically 80, 83 points a game, but they're also giving up 73 points a game, which is uh, not a great number uh, in terms of points per game, whereas Tennessee is averaging uh, about 78 points a game and giving up just under 60 points per game. So it's going to be, again, intriguing. They're, the Alabama's defense was very efficient last year you know, because of their possessions and whatnot. They gave up a little bit more um, points per game than you expect. But looking at their efficiency, they were on, on Ken Palm. They were the number three adjusted defense in the country last season um, just because of how fast they played and everything. They gave up a little bit more points than you expected, but they were really efficient. This year, they're 52 in adjusted defense. So that's it's a big difference in terms of their um, – defensive efficiency 
Tennessee, meanwhile, number two in the country in adjusted defensive efficiency. And LSU's number one, but LSU also hasn't played the schedule Tennessee has. So I would say Tennessee's probably number one if I had to really, truly put it on there. But whatever, LSU still has had a good defense. Um, but Gene, Alabama has the number nine adjusted offensive efficiency on Ken Palm. Again, that's just Ken Palm. That's just one metric. You know, and that's not what your eyes also tell you. But still, this is going to be a fun one, I think. When, and I, I, I'm very much looking forward to it. And again, I don't think we're going to do a podcast before that. So I wanted to touch on it briefly, but Gina, I'm going to go ahead and end the podcast here. I want to tell you, and I'll let you talk too, but I'll tell you a Merry Christmas, man. Cause we're only a couple of days out by the time most people listening to this will probably be Christmas Eve. And if you're traveling out there, if you're listening to this while you're traveling, be safe. Uh, again, happy holidays, Merry Christmas to all of you out there who are listening. We really appreciate all your support and everything, whether it's been on the, on the podcast, whether it's been on, on the new YouTube channel or our social media channels, man, we, we appreciate all of you. Uh, cannot say thank you enough. We'll have another episode before the new year, I believe, but Jeannie and I will. But I think this will be the obviously the the last one before Christmas, but I think also the last one before the Alabama game. No, but we're coming back Gene, tomorrow. Buddy, yeah, we're coming back with a special episode tomorrow. <laughs> I am just kidding. No, but I uh, hope everybody has some Merry Christmas. Nathaniel, I, I appreciate you allowing me this opportunity to be a part of this. Um, mm. You know, and, and so certainly a Merry Christmas to you too. Hopefully, you listeners don't spend as much money on Christmas as I spent on my soon-to-be 17-year-old son uh, with one gift that unfortunately has run me uh, about, I feel like, three months' rent. That's maybe a little too uh, maybe a little too much, but still, felt that way whenever I made it. You give him a PS5? No, no, I got him a pair of, uh, <laughs> got him a pair of foam shoes, and um, the person who makes the foam shoes... I used to like this guy a lot. Now I question him. I question a lot about who he is um, in a lot of ways. I don't, I don't question what he's become. And there's only one person I'm talking about. Any, any, you know, I don't want to say the name. They're a popular, popular hip-hop artist, as the kids would say. Um, but, yes. So, anyways, I hope everybody gets everything they want uh, this holiday season. Spend, hopefully... Uh, those who have an opportunity to spend time with friends and loved ones, do so. Hug them, kiss them, love them. Um, and obviously we'll be back, you know, next week with another great pod where we hopefully have more interesting things to talk to uh, as we bring in 2022. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you all so much, uh, ladies and gentlemen out there listening to the podcast. Thank you all. Again, as, as Gene and I both said, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and we hope you have a safe and wonderful one. Signing off for Gene, I am Nathaniel, and this has been another episode of the Vault Basketball Fever Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Vault Basketball Fever Podcast. Subscribe to the show so you'll never miss another episode. 